guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Shane. And we have a fast episode for you guys a today. Fast, fast episode. episode. <laughs> it's not, well, it's, it's about something fast. That's true. It is about Formula One and rich energy. And I have a journalist coming on. Her name is Alanis King. She is an editor at Business Insider and former journalist and editor at Jalopnik, who started there a little bit earlier than I did. She's also works for Road and Track and has a podcast uh, with Donut called The Racing, Donut Racing Show, Formula One Podcast. That's right. So she's primarily a motorsports journalist. So we're going to have her on to talk about the the saga of, uh, of, of rich, rich energy, energy and, and the what, Haas team. And, and I, honestly, I don't know a lot about I, I know the veneer. I'm trying to, so like I've seen the Netflix, you know, Formula One specials. Yeah. And I'm trying to think back to like, oh, well, they touched on this a little bit. Yeah, right? a little bit, a little and bit. And then I was not, like, well, I got to I got to dig in again after and, hearing this interview. And, and she wrote a, a a book and it is the the uh, uh, racing with rich energy is the name of the book. And it's in the show notes if you'd like to pick it up and support Lannis and, and her co-author, uh, Elizabeth. That would be awesome if you could check that out. But before we get into the interview, what have you got for yeah, us? Yeah, let's take a minute to talk about our sponsor, Petrol Box. Petrol Box is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. You you guys know that each month they carefully select items such as tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications, pins. They always give you a magnet, a pen. It's the latest and greatest cool stuff in the industry that you maybe have gotten for Christmas. And if you didn't, you can return all the crap you didn't like from Christmas. And also, get this you can yourself. harangue your family members for not getting it. Harang? Harang. You've yes. not heard that term? I have not. That's probably an old person term. <laughs> you are the uh, old person. I was raised by my group. grandparents, so yes. I was always about harangue. Don't harangue me about that. Oh my goodness. Yeah, well, there's... Well, that was old, so there you oh go. Oh my goodness. That was very Maybe Minnesota. Maybe it was just Minnesota. That yeah, was, yeah. <laughs> Regardless, there's two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium gets even more gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com, and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout. That'll get you $6 off. Also want to remind everybody about the Drivers Club. That's right. OVERCRESTPRODUCTIONS.COM slash Club of Drivers. Nope, stop doing that. Every time you do that, I have to add a new URL alias. No. It's, for, it's forward slash drivers club. Overcrestproductions.com is forward slash drivers or club. Or just go to Overcrest, our website. It's go there. to the bottom. It's there. And it's the giant link that Chris didn't see. You can support the show. Um, <laughs> if you don't support the show, you should feel bad. You should oh, feel, wow. You should feel bad. It is, uh, it's Christmas season. You should be feeling very giving. And, uh, You're here to say feeling very guilty. Yeah. <laughs> if you, here's the deal. You know, there's if San- you're not giving, you better feel guilty. Santa's, One of the G's you pick on. Santa's watching. Yep. Santa is watching. Yes. He's watching you. Overcrestproductions.com <laughs> forward slash drivers club. It's not like you don't get something. You get to support the show, of course, but you can also get t-shirts, prints, early access to episodes. Exclusive episodes Exclusive that no episodes. one else has heard. Yep. And when it's just Jake and I here in the studio, we broadcast live in the Discord, which uh, is, is part of the... We, the Discord is open to everybody. Yeah, it is. Um, and I'm going to put that... I'll put that link in the show notes as well. I've posted it on social media. Discord is open to everybody, but we do have a drivers club only area where we live stream That's and right. talk and do things like that. Anyway, let's get to our interview with, uh, with Alanis about her book, Racing with Rich Energy, How a Rogue Sponsor Took Formula One for a Ride. Alanis King, thank you so much for coming to hang out with us today. It is our pleasure to have you here. 
Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I love to be here. It's uh, You are the author of Racing with Rich Energy, editor at uh, Business Insider, former journalist and editor at Jalopnik, which is a publication that I have written for. Uh, you've done work for Road and Track. You are a co-host of Donut Racing Show, which is a form of the one podcast. You're doing amazing things. And I want to talk a book about the book, of course, but as I kind of rifle off all those things, one thing that's interesting is I had emailed Patrick George in like, 2018 to maybe even like 2017 it was 17 it was it was a while ago and i was and i and so it's like kind of like i think that's similar to when you really started getting going and yeah and you said you were on the time yeah 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 so uh, i had messaged him like hey (laughs) jalopnik sucks (laughs) Uh, like like what are you guys doing over there probably had different like intros into jalopnik uh this is no that's exactly what i said no i know i'm saying i doubt she started off the no no defaulting that's that's what i want to get it that that was my start is and he goes well then you do better so it was like this really great challenge of well then if you think we suck then write something better do something better so i was like well, shit, you know, then I have to like <laughs> do something. And I'm curious, like your career path is like super interesting. That was my start, but you were doing like weekend editing as like a, a college student. And now you've written a book and you have a podcast, working for Donut, doing road and track, doing the business insider, do all these different things. What is, how, like, how did you, how, why, why are you, what, how, why? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot. So I started at Jalopnik when I was in college. I started as the weekend editor. That was 2015. Um, before that, when I was in high school and even in my first year of college, I wrote for car magazines. So I wrote for auto week. I wrote for speed sport magazine. I wrote for a lot of different places. Um, and I always wanted to be a motorsports reporter. Why? And wait, 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 what? This, so we're going, we're even going farther back than I had information on. Okay. So, so now well, you're writing for, you're that's writing really for auto impressive because that's, that's awesome. really young to be yeah. published, especially yeah. for somebody completely mediocre. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. That, um, that is part of your bio, by the way. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, for absolutely. our listeners, Chris is uh, not just starting off insulting people. <laughs> no. Um, so I was, yeah, 18 years old when I first got published, and it was kind of wild. I always wanted to be a motorsports reporter, and that happened because when I was 12, my mother got free tickets to a NASCAR race, and she said the recession just happened. We are not going on vacation. We are not doing anything this year. So if you want to do something, we're going to go to NASCAR. And I was like, that sounds like the worst experience. Um, I so, so there was no car life right at this point. 18 no, years old. No, nothing. What are you no. driving at this time? Well, so, no, 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 no. That was, was back when she was 12. Oh, so you're 12. So you're, not, 12. you're not driving at 12. Got it. Okay. No, 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 no. So I was 12. Didn't know anything about NASCAR. I was like, that sounds like the worst use of my time ever. But you know what? Whatever. It's free. Let's go. So we go and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Like you go up in these grandstands and this mile and a half long oval racetrack and like you feel like you can see the end of the world and 40 cars go by and they're so loud that they're shaking everything. Like it feels like the earth itself is shaking underneath you. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but this is what I want to do with my life. And I just dedicated my life to becoming a NASCAR reporter. And the job opened up at Jalopnik while I was in college. It was a weekend editor job. Didn't know anything about cars at the time, only motorsports, because those people exist. Like people who only watch motorsports but don't do cars. Those people exist. Um, I didn't know anything about cars at the time. And I said, sure, why not? And I learned on the go. So 2015 was when I started in the car industry. And here we are almost eight years later. So that was kind of, so when 
when you were first, when you were 12, that had to have been late 90s, early 2000s. This is peak NASCAR, right? No, 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 no. no you don't no, think no. so? You don't think no. that's... No, no, you're wrong on my age. Oh, oh. sorry. Okay. <laughs> what, when, what, when were you watching NASCAR? Uh, I was 12 in 2009. Okay, so you're, I was you're born in 1995. Okay, so just after peak NASCAR, NASCAR is yes. still pretty good at that time. It's nowhere yes. near its peak of like 2005, 2006, which was like it, right? That was, was that like peak. Mm -hmm. That was, I think, I think that was peak. You think that was peak? Was that peak yeah, NASCAR? Yeah, it was like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you were getting in there, kind of maybe on the downslide a little bit, but it was still enough to get you excited. Um, what like? So you weren't really into cars, but you love the NASCAR thing. So day to day, you're not thinking about cars because a lot of us guys are like cars, 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 cars all the time. What kind of well, car am I getting? These days I am. These days I am. But when I was like a teenager, no, um, I was just into NASCAR. I just liked NASCAR. NASCAR was the best thing I'd ever experienced. And, you know, NASCAR is they're not they're not the cars that you buy at the dealership. Unfortunately, they, like, they are. The stickers are. But. It's not like I'm watching like IMSA. It's not like I'm watching sports car racing. It's not like I go, oh my goodness, look at this Lamborghini. It's like, no, like I'm watching NASCAR. So that to me was very removed from the car side of things. Right. Um, I wasn't super interested in cars. And then I got interested in cars because I realized that this is a very cool industry and I like it. And, you know, I started reviewing cars and doing all that. And that's what I've done for the past eight years. I've done cars and motorsports and branched into other motorsports, like, you know, a couple of years into liking NASCAR, I started watching Formula One. It's just, it all grew from there. And that's kind of my thing. Yeah. So speaking of watching Formula One, I'm having like this crisis right now, <laughs> like a, a Formula One crisis. I used to watch all the races. Well, not all of them. Cause sometimes I would, I'm not waking up for that race, but a lot, oh, I would watch. I, I know well, you have to, right? You have to. It's horrible. <laughs> Why can't they all be in America? That would just be NASCAR. Um, but I, so I'm having this crisis of like, now I, I've kind of lost touch with Formula One because of the Netflix series. Mm -hmm. Like, on it, I'm, I'm the opposite. I was not a Formula One guy at all until I watched the Netflix series. And then it reinvigorated like an interest in me. So how is, how is the Netflix series with Formula One and the, and the series itself, how have they come together? How have they influenced each other? Is it been for the positive? Oh, I absolutely think so. I mean, I think you can say a lot of things about Drive to Survive and how it portrays things. But I think the coolest thing I've seen from it is like Formula One is now a girl's sport. And I love it. I yeah. love it. All the girlies get online on the weekends and we talk about Formula One. And I think that's so cool. Like one of my close friends, like he doesn't watch Formula One. He doesn't pay attention to it. But I wrote this book and he bought it and he read the whole thing and he was like, now I have something to say to the women on the dating apps because they all love Formula One. Wait, and I think it's okay. so cool that there is now this sport where men are getting into it because of women. I think that's so cool. I love it. Do you think the the Drive to Survive series is to, I don't want to say to blame, but is the kind of the catalyst for that? Absolutely, yeah. I because that for it's, sure. it's a reality show yeah. surrounded around uh, motorsport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And it's like, I mean, this is how you open it up to new audiences. And I think the one thing motorsport has been missing for so long is making itself appeal to a broader audience. Like, 
I would have never gotten into motorsport unless I had gotten those free tickets. Or maybe I'd watched Drive to Survive on Netflix many years later. But I've been, like, at my age, I would have been way behind at that point. So I think motorsport has always struggled to get people who have not grown up in the car world or in the motorsports world. And the fact that they have done that and now, like, the normal person goes, oh, yeah. I'm going to get into Formula One so I know how to talk to women. Like, that to me is so cool. I love it. It's mind-blowing to me. All yeah, right. I love it. So you're the author of Racing with Rich Energy, and I think um, a lot of us know the veneer of, of this story. <laughs> and, and the book is kind of the, the bizarre Haas Racing, Rich Energy, Tumultuous Partnership, yes. how it all went down. Um, so I'm going to lead. This is the most important question of the entire interview. Have you ever tasted a rich energy beverage. Have you, have yes, you had, have. you have, okay. Just describe it to me because you're one of the few apparently. So I used to drink energy drinks a lot. I haven't drank energy drinks a lot in like 10 years. Right. And I had it, I had rich energy in like mid 2019, early 2020, something like that. And honestly, it tasted pretty good. I thought it was fine. Like I've had Red Bull before and I've had like Rockstar and I wasn't super into it. Like when I did drink energy drinks, I liked Monster and I feel like Rich Energy rivaled that. Like, I, So it didn't taste like a Zimbabwean like tobacco farm or anything <laughs> no, like that? No, it tasted <laughs> sketchy. Right? So, like it tasted good. I liked it. I thought it was good. Um, everything else was kind of not so good though. Right, right. So it, I reread, I went back and read your piece in 2019, um, which kind of documented like, this is kind of when things are going down and you're looking into it and you find out they have $100 in their bank account. Where's all the money? How is this possible? Who is this William Story guy? Is, how did you get turned on to this story? And how did it become something that really, I mean, it judging by the book, this really dominated your life for quite some time. How, how did you get into this story? So I think the biggest thing that attracted me and my co-author, Elizabeth, to this story was the fact that no one was covering it. So this is 2019. This is kind of a different era of Formula One. Like this is, I would say the modern era of Formula One is different than it was in 2018 and 2019. Like 2018 and 2019, we're still getting used to the new regime at Formula One, which is Liberty Media. So for many, many years, Formula One was controlled by Bernie Ecclestone. And if you don't know Bernie Ecclestone, Bernie Ecclestone was a my rules, my paddock, do what I say, I don't care about anything else kind of guy. So Lewis Hamilton was using Snapchat in the Formula One paddock and he got banned. Like, it was weird. It was a very locked down sport and Liberty Media took over in 2016 and became it became more of an open sport, right? We started using our phones in the paddock. We got drive to survive, stuff like that. But still the reporting was not as transparent or as like deep as much of a deep dive as it should have been. So we have this company come in, Rich Energy. No one knows what this is. Like the bank account seems weird. Like everything seems kind of weird. The Twitter accounts seem weird. Well, just just, no for, just for my own on it. for my own state of mind. Yes. When it was with Bernie Ecclestone, or was it was it kind of a like a, it wasn't a FIFA type of situation, right? There wasn't like corruption. It was just really, really black book. It, it was, was 
I'm trying to like, yeah. when you think of, I just watched the the whole episode on, or series on Netflix about FIFA and the corruption and like the four part series about how the, all these guys, like, you know, they kept ledgers of everything, but it was all kind of under the table. Was it like that at Formula One before the, the media company took over? Liberty Media? So I would say Formula One was just very much on lockdown. Like, okay. I can't comment on the many, many years before I was in this because, you know, I didn't start covering Formula One professionally until like 2014 or so 2013 2014 and at this point like i'm like 18 years old and i'm going to formula one um and so that's when i start covering it so i don't have that like historical experience with covering formula one under bernie ecclestone's regime like i just don't but uh i don't know that's hard for me to say (laughs) that's hard for me to say i don't know there's some sketchy stuff going on there's some sketchy stuff they're all involved in um well when anytime you're talking about that kind of money yeah yeah. i mean people will kill people for that kind of money right i mean like you just it's a anytime you have that large of a sum of money it, it corrupts it just does and I mean, like, there's a lot of wild stuff that happened in Formula One. Like, in the first chapter of our book, we immediately start talking about sex scandals in Formula One and, like, the little black book and names that are in the little black book, stuff like that. Like, lots of names you will recognize are in that book. <laughs> and it's it's a lot. But I think Formula One is a lot more open these days than it used to be. And I feel like people would question a sponsor like Rich Energy more these days, kind of like we did with the Nikita Mazepin thing. So Nikita Mazepin comes right. in and his father's company, Earl Colley, is sponsoring him. And everyone's like, this seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Um, turns out more of that. Turns out pretty bad. Yeah. Pretty bad. It was Gazprom, right? Wasn't it like yeah, the, it was, like the it, gas so company? Earl Colley. Yeah. Earl Colley is a chemicals company. Um, they're responsible for some big sinkholes that are swallowing like towns in Russia. That's a lot. Yeah, that's great. Um, But there was a lot more questioning this time around and a lot more like visible questioning from people who have platforms. With Rich Energy, it was kind of like all the forums are like, what's going on? What's happening? And no one's actually looking into it and reporting on it. So we saw that and we went, let's look into it. And we did. And we interviewed William Story and we did all this stuff. And we asked the Haas F1 team, we were like, how did you decide to do this? And yeah. they said, our due diligence with potential partners is a confidential matter on every single question. And I was like, right. well, huh. okay. Yeah, because you think and, like Gunther Steiner, team principal, is like this super crabby dude, right? And you think he would have been like, <laughs> you think he would have been all over that William Story guy. You, you would think, but it's just like, what? what? I, there's a quote here. It's uh, uh, when William Story was asked about all this he says it's like saying a man never walked on the moon or elvis is still alive which is like are you are you admit admitting that this is all a lie but you can't <laughs> prove it's i what are you saying right now like well so they're so they're later on in the book um they go to court over their logo which their logo looked oddly like this british bike company's logo almost exactly you might say and they lost the court case over this and in the judgment, the judge said, when I asked William Story questions, he had a tendency to speak in the third person and speak about things I wasn't asking about. So you would ask him a question and he would start talking about like his vision for the brand or something random and speaking in the third person. And he had a tendency to dodge questions, which you can kind of see that. It's a pattern. Yeah, 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 for, for sure. So how did they... 
tell me about William's story. Okay, where did this guy come from? Because if you think, if you think of how obvious it is now, and even then people were asking questions on Reddit and and you were asking questions, and you think of a like a team like Haas, which is, you know, that's a huge company, you know, on the on the side, let alone the formula team. They you would think that they would do the due diligence. So the fact that things kind of maybe they didn't, or obviously they didn't, right? Or obviously they overlooked or set things aside. And the only reason I can think of that is because the charisma of William's story must have been absolutely incredible. The guy must have been the like it, like the beginning of your book talks to like he could sell anything to anybody, right? The first sentence is about how much of a salesman he is. Hmm. Yep. Tell me about this guy. So, I mean, we asked people this because, you know, the final chapter, we intended to kind of circle back around to William's story. Like, who is this guy? Where did he go to school? Like, what does he like? What are his hobbies? And he didn't participate in the book. We sent him all of the questions. We asked him for an interview. He read them and didn't respond. And we weren't able to talk about him. We could only talk about him in the ways that we had, which were from other people and from our own research. So we asked a lot of the people we talked to, like the people who got into business with him, we said, what was it? Like, why did you get into business with this guy? And they said, because he's such a good salesperson. Like, it doesn't matter if there's something there, if there's nothing there, it doesn't matter what's there. He can sell it to you. And then once you're in and you see it, you're like, oh, this isn't as big as I thought it was. And it's kind of wild how that happens. I mean, I think we see that on a larger level with a lot of people. Like if you were to compare William's story to two people, you would compare him to Donald Trump and Elon Musk. And like, that's kind of just in demeanor, not necessarily in like what fields he's in or like what he's doing or what's successful or what's not. Just in his demeanor, he talks a huge game. And when people talk a huge game, they get people on board. It doesn't matter if there's nothing there. They will still get you on board somehow because people just want to believe in a vision. Right, right. And I mean, it, it was the the Elizabeth, I can't remember, the pharmaceutical company where she was mm-hmm. selling. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... Is Theranos. Theranos. Yeah. It was the same thing, right? There was nothing there. Now, the question is, is... She always defended herself of, yeah, there was nothing there, but we were going to make it. We were going to make it there. We were going to do it, right? Is that, do you think William was lying outrightly just to get money and take it? Or did he, was it kind of like this pyramid scheme where he thought, okay, if I can get this partnership, then we'll get onto their investors and then we can make this energy drink. And then we, and you know, like you're starting to like trying to put the puzzle pieces together, even though the puzzle doesn't exist yet. And you, you don't have any of the edge pieces yet, but you're still trying to figure it out. Well, so I think this is a, I think this is a very interesting question because I think it's a little bit of both. So I really do think that if William's story just, kind of shut up, he would have been able to do something with his brand. Like you look at these race cars, the Haas F1 cars, they're black and gold. They're beautiful. You look at this energy drink can, it looks like an energy drink. It's pretty cool looking with that black and gold. No matter what the financial investment was to enter Formula One and, you know, how much money needed to be taken from the bank or whatever, he got there. He sold a Formula One team on himself. And I think if he had sat back a little more and not tried to become 
the main character and do all this stuff, he probably could have gotten people buying his brand. But his whole thing was being the main character and doing this. And I think it's a little bit of both. Again, like I think it's getting to this world stage and selling your brand, but also there's an example in the book of when he went to court over the logo, the judge said, how many cans of Rich Energy have you sold? And he said, in excess of 90 million. And the judge says, yeah, right, try again. <laughs> and he's, yeah, basically. And he says, well, we have filled 90 million cans, but no, we have made 90 million cans, but we have not yet filled and sold them because they make the cans in one place and they fill them in another place. Yep. And he said, I think in 2018, we sold about 3 million. And then the very next day, the day after this court case, I'm on the phone with him interviewing him. And he tells me we have now sold in excess of 100 million cans because he did not expect me to find those court documents and be able <laughs> to go on March 14th, he said this. And on March 15th, he told me this. And these things are not the same. Did you did you so, call him out right away? I couldn't because those, those documents didn't exist until uh, a couple months later. I got so you, got you. that was the actual court case. And the information, like the transcript came in the judgment two months later in right. May. And so this was like a retroactive, he said this on March 14th and he told me the, this on March 15th. And I think he just simply wasn't expecting me to find those court documents and be able to compare those statements. Yeah, so he basically was, he was writing checks. You know, now when you write a check, it's all ACH, it gets deposited right away. So you can't, you can't float checks anymore. But he was basically floating check, like data, right? Just well, that's yeah, my question. Floating yeah, floating like data. There had to be some money somewhere in order to start promising some of these things. Or it was just, it was all empty, empty promises. Well, he had $100 in his bank account at one point, which he would right, then say, well. Is mismanagement of money? He, like, he would say, oh, I've got other bank accounts in other places or whatever, right? I mean, where's the money coming? Exactly where's the initial money coming from to even get 90 million cans made? Because even that's not cheap. That's a great question. I mean, we could never get a straight answer on anything. And he would always say, I have different bank accounts and I have in excess of seven figures in this one bank account. And I have this in this bank account. But he would never produce that information. Because if you would simply show me that information, then we could talk. Right. But mm -hmm. if you don't show me that information, I can't see that information. So there's and some so like shadow investor out there that just got absolutely fucked. Like, well, like so, somewhere. Know, he used to, he would list off his investors and some of those investors included uh, David Sullivan and David Gold from the West Ham soccer team. Mm -hmm. And I would ask David Sullivan and David Gold's people, are they actually involved with this guy? And they would never give me a straight answer either. And it was weird. Like, it just didn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you just very, say, very odd. I, if it was a no, you would just say no. Because it would be easy to, to like, yeah, because you would want to distance yourself. distance yourself from the embarrassment of it because you can't say yes. If you say yes, then you look like an idiot. And, exactly. And ego is everything, exactly. right? So you don't. Well, but also you go to the West Ham um, website and as of a couple of years ago, Rich Energy was an official sponsor of the West Ham women team. 
Gotcha. Huh. Okay. Okay. So there's, there's, it's all intertwined. Wh- so where did this, it's all intertwined. where did this guy grow up? Where did he come from? Do we know anything about his history? Is he just like, is he a con artist? I guess is my so, question. A grifter. Yeah. That's, that's actually what we wanted to ask him. That was part of the 120 questions that we <laughs> planned to ask him. And when he didn't respond to an interview request, we sent him the questions and he didn't answer those questions. We, know very little about his life before he entered formula one aside from his businesses which we talk about in the book but his life itself we don't have a lot of information on it we do know that in one interview he seemed to claim that he almost made a senior appearance for a soccer club called the queen's park rangers and we reached out to the club historian and they were like i have never heard of this guy in my life um And they were like, I very much doubt that he was on this team. And, you know, it wasn't super clear. It seemed like he was saying, I almost made a senior appearance on this soccer team. Right. But it wasn't like the wording was a little weird. Yeah. And so we kind of talk about that in the book. We're like, the wording was a little weird, but we reached out to the club and the club said they have no idea who this guy is. And so... You know, was he involved in soccer? Was he this? Was he that? Was he a real? Per- was he a real person? Did William Story exist? Does he exist? Right? Is it an alien? Like legally, does is it a real person? That's a great question. <laughs> I am very so. I'm very very um, versed in how to look up people and do all this stuff in the United States yep. because I am a journalist in the United States. When it comes to the UK. I don't have as many tools for looking mm. people up and confirming their identities. So if I'm in the United States and I'm doing a story on someone, I'm going to look them up in one of two places, LexisNexis or Westlaw. Oh, I hit my microphone. It's okay. LexisNexis or Westlaw. Yep. In the UK, that's a little bit harder for me because I'm not a journalist in the UK. And so that's a great question. He is listed on all of his business documents as William Story, and he is listed like, in his birthplace and his birth date. Um, and I think you would have to have a legal name to do that. So, you know, we never learned much about him because he didn't. Like, who's there, where is mates from college? Where are his <laughs> mates from, from uh, primary school, as they would call it? Like, where are these well, people? Where, who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? I don't understand. You know, it's crazy. We reached out to some people in his personal life. We reached out to like an ex-girlfriend and stuff like that. And no one was interested in talking. Like they kind wow. of just dodged us. What kind of, le- what kind of leverage does this guy have on people? Right? He wanted to learn about his personal life. Yeah. And we just simply could not. Right. To Chris's point, like, is he blackmailing him basically to say, don't talk about me? Or he's paying him off. With, right. Maybe he was able to scrap 90 million aluminum cans. I don't know what the scrap <laughs> value is. A 90, <laughs> a 90 million aluminum cans is. Yeah. What is it? Five cents a can? Something yeah. like that? I honestly, there's so much running through that guy's head, like at any given point, that I feel like he would probably struggle to have some kind of scheme. Because he's just like, his attention is all over the place. Like, he's tweeting about this thing, and then he's tweeting about this, and then he's doing this, and doing this, and doing this. Like, he very quickly moved on from the idea that a book was getting written about him. Because he's got other stuff to do. Like, he leaves Formula One. He joins other racing series. He leaves other racing series. He tries to buy a football club. Like, So he's out there trying to buy football. So what is he doing right now? Do you know? Like, what's he up to? Uh, He's tweeting. Um, He hasn't made... (laughs) He hasn't made a lot of waves lately, so there was there was like a 
one of his motorsport sponsorships fell through, and that was after he tried to buy a football club. And the motorsport sponsorship fell through after we published the book. So that was interesting. It was like a whole new layer after the book published. Um, He tried to buy the Sunderland Football Club. That did not work. And so he kind of just like yells online about how he should have bought the Sunderland Club. And he yells online about Formula One and how he's coming back to Formula One. But the funny thing is, is he always says, we're coming back next season. And then he doesn't come back the next season. And then he says, we're coming back next season. He and can't he let it go. The next he can't <laughs> let it go. He'll never he'll never be able to feed his ego as much as he did in that year or two. Like he'll never yeah. be able to feed it like he did. So tell me, like, how does a partnership with Formula One work? Like if I'm William Story and I want to have a part, I want I want over Haas Overcrest Productions partnership. Yeah. How do I do that? What does that look like and how much money does that actually take? So all you have to do is convince Haas and the interesting. Not thing hard. About- not, not hard. <laughs> okay. not, not hard. Um, Apparently. <laughs> the interesting thing about the Rich Energy sponsorship is that Haas's annual budget at this time was about 100 million pounds. The Rich Energy deal was only worth like 15 to 17 million pounds. So they're not even paying most of the bill. Most of the bill is still going to Haas Automation, which. Yep. Haas Automation during the first few years of the Formula One team was the main sponsor on that car. And Haas Automation is like the team owned by Gene Haas. Haas Automation is also a sponsor in some of Gene Haas's NASCAR cars. Like it goes on and off of these cars regularly. So the vibe I got when talking to former employees is that Gene Haas's approach for his businesses. I am sorry, my cat is climbing. It's <laughs> all right. Um, Gene Haas's approaches for his businesses are, we're going to start out paying a certain amount of money and we're going to try to chip away at that. And I think the idea with a partnership with Rich Energy was, look, they're not paying us a lot of money compared to our annual budget, but we're going to let them take over the car so that we can show other brands, look, we have a car for sale, buy into it. Were they having trouble getting sponsors? I mean, how hard can it be to get someone to see something that's one of the most popular sports in the world? I mean, they could have been anybody. Maybe it was Star- so, Starbucks for all I know. So again, this is just my theory. Like, this is just what I have deduced because the Haas F1 team didn't want to participate. And we asked to talk to Gunther. We asked to talk to Gene. We asked to do all of that. They didn't want to participate. This is just my theory. Like, they're trying to slowly chip away at how much money Gene is paying, like, Gene does not want to pay more than he did last year. Right. And, you know, if a brand is paying $20 million, all right, that's 20 million fewer dollars Gene Haas has to pay. And I mean, I don't know. I think if I was trying to attract sponsors to my car, I would make a really cool paint scheme for this cheaper sponsor and be like, look what we can do for you. Yeah. And again, this is 2019, late 2018, early 2019. Sure. Like, you're gonna have that drive to survive boom, but it hasn't boomed quite yet. Like it's still not there. That drive to survive boom, I really saw that, especially in America in 2021, when Formula One returned after the pandemic. Like that was when the track started really selling every single seat and there were people everywhere. Before that, it was more of an international stage, right? I mean, to be honest, let's, I mean like South America, Mm -hmm. Europe, you know, Asia, Russia, of course, too. Russia doesn't have a large population, but they still have Formula One. 
but not America, right? So, but still, you would think, you know, you've got Petronas, you've got like, what are, what about British Petroleum? Why, why don't they sponsor Haas? Like, there's all these huge international conglomerates that I don't understand how it ends up being this this sketchy <laughs> dude with an energy drink company. It, I mean, that's a great. I mean, that's a great question. I think. Part of Formula One is that if your car is at the back or your car is near the back, eh, like yeah. your car is near the back. And Haas, you know, its first couple of years, it did all right. Like it was, it wasn't last in the standings, certainly. But 2018 was the really big year for Haas. They finished fifth in the team standings. Come 2019, they are like at the bottom it is hor- like it is embarrassing it is mm-hmm. awful and then 2020 is even more embarrassing and awful i think they scored 28 points in 2019 and everybody's like this can't get any worse 2020 they scored 3 points mm-hmm. 3 it's horrible wow. like it it was so bad it just was there an internal I- implosion after all of this happened were people embarrassed and they left did the team fragment what happened so i mean Haas is a very interesting organization in that everyone told me not a lot of people leave this place. Like you kind of go to Haas and you're there. Haas is also the very small team. Like in 2019, it was the smallest. Like it had like 250 employees, not a lot. And I think, yes, quite a few of the people I talked to left specifically because of Rich Energy and what happened there. And yes, there was fragmenting, but it wasn't just rich energy. Like it was our car is so bad and we Mm. don't know how to fix it. And also rich energy. So one of the people I talked to, they said, you know, when your car is this bad, when your race car is this bad, you start to try to fix all of the little things and you forget what makes the car go. You forget the basics Mm -hmm. and you have to, the basics have to work well for the car to be fast. And when you forget what makes the car go and you start focusing on all the teeny tiny little things, you've lost the plot. Right. And we lost the plot. And there's all this like infighting about what's making the car so bad. And none of us can decide. And also at the same time, this guy is like tweeting all of this stuff. And our team principal has to be <laughs> like, yeah, ignore that. <laughs> um, that's not real. Like it, there was so much going on, not just from Rich Energy, but also from that car being so, so bad that it was very, very hard to work there. Is there is there anyone to blame for the car being so bad? Is there anybody that you can go, yeah, like that person wasn't a good leader or was it just like overall shitstorm where you couldn't even put your <laughs> finger on, on what was going on? I mean, yeah, so... A lot of people I talked to were like, oh, yeah, our aero wasn't good enough or, oh, like our power units weren't good enough or all this stuff. But no one really pointed fingers at anyone specifically. I think it's just more of like once your Formula One season begins, you're kind of if you're bad, you're bad. Yep. And if you're good, you're good. So this season, you know, Formula One rolled out a new rules package. Mercedes comes out and Mercedes is bad. Mercedes kind of recovered toward the end of the year, but they didn't recover to being like at the front right. all the time because their car was bad. Is this like, because of, is this just, because of rules? I mean, the rules seem to have have helped 
teams without as much money. You know, Mercedes has unlimited money, right? I mean, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they weren't used to this car, and the car that they developed was just not the right car. And in 2019, with the Haas car, the VF19, it was just, it was not the right car for the job. And, you know, a lot of the employees were like, if you look at Red Bull, or you look at Mercedes, or you look at Ferrari, they back then had this unlimited, unlimited resources, unlimited people. They could just go in the wind tunnel and throw stuff at the car. But we at the Haas F1 team are instead trying one aero package on one car and one aero package on the other car at the race weekend because we don't have the resources to test it all the time and just throw stuff at it. So, you know, the drivers, there was even infighting between the drivers because, you know, one driver is getting the updated aero spec. The other driver is getting the aero spec from the beginning of the season so that they can like compare them. And the drivers, like they're jealous of each other. Like they're, they want one thing and they're getting a different thing. And it was a mess. It was a mess. The drivers were fighting, the sponsors going wild, the cars terrible. Like it was so bad. There's even a quote in Drive to Survive where Gunther Steiner pulls both of the drivers aside at the British Grand Prix after they have this like on-track clash. And he is like, if it were up to me, I would not bring them back next year. I am not running a kindergarten here. They're acting like <laughs> kindergartners, of course, with a lot more like F-bombs in there. They're acting like kindergartners. Like if you're gonna act like this, do not come back here. Do not work with me. And you know, they ended up keeping those drivers the next year. But Gunther Steiner was like, I don't want y'all anymore. I need you to leave. Like, I can't do this. And it was just, everything was so bad. I always look at like drivers as this, this commodity where the separation from someone like Max Verstappen or uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton and some like the Haas drivers, something like that. Yes, Lewis is, is better than them, but it's not by like a lot because all of these guys are extremely adept athletes right even even like the the second driver or the backup driver for god's sake otherwise they wouldn't be in formula one so there's so many other factors that go into it that's why i'm always like i'm looking at the car and you know you kind of look at why you know sebastian vettel left red bull way back in the day it was in my opinion was to prove that he could be good and not be with the car you know i think a lot of drivers leave the team that they're on so they're not driving the car which is what everybody thinks is is the reason why they're good but it kind of you know you've got driver car team those are the three aspects right and if any one of them well falters, you're missing the biggest one which is the fourth money money yeah money is yeah. i think the biggest one yeah well they're trying to fix that i think yeah well Yep, definitely. And I mean, you know, you can see if you're watching a Formula One race and you see Fernando Alonso or Sebastian Vettel do something really brilliant, everybody's like, yeah, I mean, look at how good of a driver this guy is. Like, they're just not in that car that they used to be in. And yeah, I mean, I think if you take these drivers and you put them in a really good car, they are extremely competitive. They are very good. But unfortunately... The teams with the best cars are going to pick the drivers they think are best at driving those cars. And, and the drivers want to be in them, too. The drivers yeah. want to be in that car. Yeah. And if you're slightly below those drivers, then you're out. I mean, you look at something like the 2016 F1 season, where Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg are neck and neck all season in the same car. Nico Rosberg wins the championship, retires. He says, I'm out of here. I'm sick of the mind games. I'm leaving. 
Valtteri Botas comes in. Valtteri's great. Valtteri's a good driver. He's a great personality. But Valtteri never challenged for the championship with Lewis Hamilton. Valtteri was a number two driver. Right. And that was the role he played because Lewis performed better. And you can see that when you put these people in the car. Was that intentional, though? Did they intentionally hire him for that role? You know what I mean? Was Lewis like, go out and find me somebody that's this guy? <laughs> right? I mean, th- th- that's a great question. Like, I'm sure it played a role because it was a very... It was a very difficult year for Mercedes with the fighting between. Oh, it was great from our perspective. It was fantastic. (laughs) But like, it was a lot of mind games. It was a lot of like competing against ourselves. And, you know, unfortunately, a Formula One team works best when you have a number one driver and a number two driver. Right. Because you tell Sergio Perez, hey, we need you to act like a rolling boulder Mm -hmm. so that Max Verstappen can gain some time and Checo does it. Like, he does it. Just like Valtteri, you give Valtteri some team orders. Valtteri's like, all right, toward the end of his Mercedes time, he started not listening, which is great. Um, But you need a number one driver and a number two driver because you don't have the same outcome if you're not telling someone to do something and having them listen. Like, You saw this late this season. Max Verstappen has already won the championship. He wins it so many races early. And they say, hey, Max, can you slow down and help Checo get second in the championship? And Max continually says no. Max is like, no, 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 no. Did Checo get second in the championship? No, because he didn't have help because Max didn't help him. And if another team, if you have a similar car, and one driver has two drivers, I mean, one team has two drivers fighting against each other, and one dri- one team has a number one driver and a number two driver, the team with the number one driver and the number two driver is in a better position because the number two driver's sole focus is winning the championship for the number one driver. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. That's just the reality of Formula One. And like, you know. always It's always been that way. It's, that's just the way it is. Exactly. That is because team orders exist and they're allowed. You go somewhere like NASCAR and you give a team order. Oh, you are. No, you're done. This is not happening. A a thing that sounded vaguely like a team order happened toward the end of this NASCAR season. And it was a whole event like suspensions and penalties and fines like NASCAR doesn't do team orders. Formula One does. Why do you think NASCAR doesn't? You know, that's a good question. I think NASCAR's like big, big team orders event in modern history happened uh, 2012, 2013. Um, Michael Waltrip Racing had a big team orders catastrophe where they basically told one driver to do something to get another driver into the postseason chase, which was, which is like, you know, you have your regular season drivers, and if you qualify for the chase, you're one of the drivers going for the championship. Right. Michael Waltrip Racing manipulates the chase, and NASCAR ended up having to expand the playoff field to from 12 drivers to 13 to include Jeff Gordon because his spot was unfairly taken from him in the chase. It's so interesting but- having two different these these motorsports being completely diametrically opposed from each other and how they handle that. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and I mean, obviously, this happened like ten years ago, so my memory is not great. But I know it was a whole thing. Like <laughs> we're adding another driver to the chase. Like this is bad, and you know that. I think 
an aspect of that has to do with modern NASCAR. Modern NASCAR takes it down to the wire. Like, you have elimination playoffs, yeah. you go into the final race of the season, and the highest finisher left wins the championship. If you have team orders in the championship race, and that decides the championship, yeah, NASCAR fans are not going to be happy. Right. They're not going to be happy at all. But the opposite side of that is, you know, in the cutoff race to get the championship four, I'm sure you saw it, Ross Chastain decided not to break, <laughs> slam the gas. Wall ride. Ran the wall. Yep. He ran the wall, did a lap that was like two seconds faster than everybody else. He acted on his own. You know what? Not a team order. I taught him everything he knew because I, <laughs> right? I did that in Gran Turismo when I was seven. Exactly. <laughs> we all <Yeah>. did. <laughs> right. What was like the but, what was the inner chatter about that? Because we all know like what was printed, what the announcer said. What was like the generalized inner monologue of of, of NASCAR? So that's a great question. Uh, the chatter was like kind of on both sides. Like some people were like. Look, get it, boy. <laughs> you you get rewarded for doing the wild thing, yeah. the thing that no one sees coming. You get rewarded for that. And even so, this basically what happens is NASCAR eliminates drivers in every single round of the playoffs. This round was going from eight to four. Four is the last round where you go into that last championship. The highest finisher in the race wins. So Ross was in fifth. He was not going to make the championship race. So fuck and it. He, fuck it. Why not? <laughs> he just sent it. And the driver he knocked out was Denny Hamlin. And they walked up to Denny Hamlin to interview him after the race. And they're like, huh? And he's like, and he's like you know what? Didn't see it coming. Yeah. I respect All's it. fair in love and war, right? That's awesome. All, like, all's fair. If you, if you do something that I don't see coming and you knock me out, I didn't see it coming. Like, that's my fault. And some drivers were like, we need to race like we race. And some drivers were like, he did it. <laughs> I didn't do it. If I would have done it, then I would have maybe gotten in. Like, it was very split half and half. Ross was told not to do it again. <laughs> um, Is there like I an official rule? Is it like right. the, the Are Ross they going to outlaw that now? So that's so they haven't like officially said anything but they were like a hey, maybe don't like, don't do that yeah quit that <laughs> but <laughs> if Ross that situation like, comes up again and it's not illegal someone's gonna do it right well that's what i'm thinking how is every race not gonna end that way now well so that's kind of the question um not every track is suitable to this so nascar was given kind of an ultimatum do we make a rule for the championship race because if we go into the championship race and someone rides the wall and wins the championship, we have to have a rule in place or else that person is going to win. The championship race was at a track where, so at Martinsville, it's a very smooth kind of oval. That wall is very smooth. Phoenix is the championship race. And if you're going down the backstretch at Phoenix, you're going straight, 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 and the wall curves out. And then it comes around to make the circle. So instead of making a complete, like a perfect oval, it has like a little dent in it. Yep. Mm. And by the time that dent happens, it's very hard to have that momentum and ride the wall without just like destroying your suspension and not being able to do it. Right. You have to hit the wall perfectly. And that's very, very, very hard to do at Phoenix. And you gain so much less time 
because the track is bigger. Well, they should just turn off damage. Shape. Like in the game, you can just you just turn <laughs> off damage. You turn yeah. off damage, yeah, and clearly can... that was what was going on, right? Yeah. <laughs> just check yeah, the box. Right? Just check the box. Turn off damage. Yeah. And so NASCAR said we're not going to make this rule for the championship race, and I think it's probably a situation where they are all sitting down right now in these months leading up to the new season and going, do we do something? Because our cutoff race will again be at Martinsville, where mm. Ross did this and showed that it is extremely effective. Yep. What do we do? Because, I mean, if you have 12 people do that <laughs> at Martinsville, Can you like, imagine? I hope they're going to start hurting each other. Just yeah. a single file line. Of just <laughs> 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 they're just going to have like yeah. rub strips, like, like, like yeah. bumper cars. Delrin. Bumper cars. Yeah, like bumper cars, <laughs> the plastic strips that are there. All right. Yeah. I wonder, well, I mean, they're probably just going to end up changing all the track walls to have kind well, of this. Like spikes? Like, no. Like, oh, do you remember? going to kill the drivers. Do you remember, yes. twist, you remember Twisted Metal back in yes, the day? I do. It could be, yeah. We're, we're really, well, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> I think, I think Ross is a very, like, whether you agree with it or not, he's extremely innovative because the culture of NASCAR to me is finding a way to do things faster than anybody else, even if it's outrageous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the Indy road course, Indianapolis road course, there was a runoff road. It was an access road where it was like, if it is dangerous going into turn one, this is a similar length. And you can use it and not get penalized. Who decides Ross what's just dangerous? Ross used it <laughs> at the end of the race. He just used it. And he was like, I mean, the rule was blurry. He comes around and gets the lead because everybody goes into turn one. And Ross goes down the access road. There's no other cars. He has no one to battle with. Yeah. And he comes back on the track in the lead. He ended up losing it um, to Tyler Reddick. And Tyler Reddick won the race. But NASCAR penalized him because NASCAR was like, you took our blurry rule, which I don't think NASCAR should have penalized him. No. I think he did what he, I think he did a legal thing, but they had to set a precedent. I think the better thing to do would have been make the rule clearer for next year and go, you know what, Ross, you outsmarted us. But Ross Chastain's whole thing is outsmarting you. And that's what he did at Martinsville. And that's I have so many NASCAR questions, but we're in the midst of writing a history of NASCAR series, like an eight part serious so i I'm, I'm going to not you're promising people eight parts now i, I don't know <laughs> six it'll, it'll be like it'll be like it's a multi-page like series six, we're gonna like six, six yeah. to eight. okay so i don't write nearly as much as you do we're kind of gonna wrap things up a little bit i don't write like yeah, you do sure. and it's not about the same things i usually write about going somewhere or you know you do a experiential. lot of, like experientially right you're you're more of a journalist than i am but the question i get most often is how do you write? How do I write? It's never why. It's always how. And I, uh, the, the question is always, because a lot of trouble people have is they sit down and they see the cursor blinking and they're like, I don't know what to do. And my advice for them is always just start writing. It doesn't matter if it sucks. It will come. It will come to you. It will come. Even if the first paragraph is crap, at least you've got some sort of foundation to work off of and, and it will get better as you go on. Um, but what, what advice do you have for people that want to start writing and especially young writers that want to write in, in this field particularly? What is your advice for them? That's a great question. I mean, I started writing when I was in obviously high school, like high school newspaper and stuff like that. I would say... Just like as much practice as you can get, do it because my writing is very, very different than it was even a few years ago. Like you evolve as a writer 
by writing. Also, find people whose writing you really like and read their writing and kind of see what they do. Like, I I know people who are very good at car reviews, are very good at reporting, are very good at this. And I read their stuff and I go, okay, this is interesting. And I also, when I'm reading this stuff, I go, how would I have done this differently? And I think one of the main things I do when I write something is, let's say my word count for a story is 1200 words. I'll write 2000 and then I'll cut it down to 1200. Because here's the thing, if you write for a word count, and you write for that word count, you're gonna have so much fluff that you don't need, and you're gonna miss some important stuff. But if you shoot way past that word count and then cut it down to that, the only stuff you're gonna have left is the really, really good stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's, that is a method that I have been using in the past like year or two. It's hard sometimes yes. though. You're like, that part's really good. <laughs> no, I mean, just make a copy of it and you have your original, make a copy of it, work on this new document. Yep. And you will realize when you read that original, I didn't need those words. Sure. I didn't need that. Flow. The economy of I, the economy of words is, is really important. It's really hard to, it's way easier to write something long verbose. than it is to yeah. write something small. It's way, way exactly. easier for sure. Exactly. And I, I would say the best writing is the writing that tells you what you need to know in the fewest amount of words. Like you don't need all of those L-Y words. You don't need <laughs> those extra sentences. You don't need the sentence that introduces the quote that sounds kind of like the quote. You don't need that extra mm -hmm. sentence. You don't need those extra words. And I have, I think that is the one thing that has really, really brought up my quality of writing in the past couple of years is just writing long and cutting short. It's, that is my favorite method. It's great advice. All right, last question comes from, question comes from a mutual friend of ours, um, which I won't name, but maybe you'll know who they are by knowing what, what this question is. Do you have any recommendations for eating at Chili's um, anything to definitely try when you're there or avoid when you are there? I, the thing I get when I go to Chili's. What? Whoa, what? Hold on. What? <laughs> She's a big fan of Chili's. It's important. I'm a Chili's person. I like Chili's too. I'm I with you. I, I, I always, I show up. Okay. I get the chips and salsa and the queso dip yes. every time. Yeah. Every time. Yes. And it's free. Exactly. The chips and dip, they're, they're, they're free. Exactly. I, I love Chili's. I'm a big fan. Okay. Um, I go to Chili's. Every Friday at 5.15, I go to Chili's. <laughs> I love Chili's. Um, every time I go, I get the chips and salsa with the queso, and I get the skillet cookie. And the thing is, oh, the the thing skillet is in the middle, you can mix and match, you can do whatever, but the chips and queso and the skillet cookie, <laughs> those are a go. Like The Big Mouth are. Burger, too, also very good. The cheeseburger is good. Yeah. Now I want then, Chili's. <laughs> so like, I love chain restaurants in general. So like, I go to Chili's all the time. Um, I, oh, the Rainforest Cafe. I love the Rainforest Cafe. Oh no. Cafe. Um, <laughs> Have you been to the one in the Mall of America? No, I haven't. It's quite special. I went special. to the one in Vegas quite special. this year. Yeah, I went to the one in Vegas earlier this year. It was amazing. Like, oh, my husband really likes going to Texas Roadhouse. We go to Texas Roadhouse. Cheddars, I love Cheddars. Cheddars, they're my friends online. Cheddars, hold on, let me show you what Cheddars is. This, uh, this is great. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Jake, you wanna go to Chili's? I kinda do so, wanna go to Chili's now. <laughs> so, 
Cheddar's knows. So Cheddar's sponsors. I don't know what Cheddar's is. We don't have that. Yo, we don't have a Cheddar's here. We're in Minnesota. We're in Minneapolis. Cheddar's, Cheddar's is like kind of like a Southern thing, I feel like. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's a chain restaurant. And they, for the past couple of years, have sponsored my favorite NASCAR driver. And they know he's my favorite NASCAR driver. I took him to Medieval Times and... People were like, is Cheddar's okay with this? And Cheddar's was like, she can take him anywhere she wants. Like, <laughs> we, we are not competitive. And they sent me his race car, his Cheddar's race car. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Cheddar's and scratch. I love. What, oh, are they, goodness, what, so. what is this, American restaurant? Not sponsors, yeah, yeah, yeah. but hey, that's okay. It's, we can. <laughs> it, it's Cheddar's Scratch Kitchen. And what everyone goes to Cheddar's for is the drinks. So you can get like a $6 drink. It's the size of your head. The last time I was there, I got one of those drinks and I was so incapacitated. <laughs> I had to sit in the lobby for like 45 minutes before I could leave. Cause I like, I told my server, like I was kind of falling over the table and I was like, I can't take your tips. I have to leave your table, but I also can't leave. So I'm just gonna and hang out here. Yeah, so I just went and I sat in the lobby for like 45 minutes um, because I had that drink that was the size of my head and I oh, thought man. I was going to die. And Cheddar's isn't sponsoring my favorite driver anymore because he's going to a new team and they have a McDonald's sponsorship. So they're staying on this car. And so I went to Cheddar's and I said, can I have the menu? Because it says my favorite NASCAR driver's name on it. Like, can I can I have the menu? Yeah. You're not going to use it. Yeah, anymore. why not? They gave me the menu. They gave me the menu, and they also brought me the little sheets of paper with the race car on them. <laughs> they just brought me like basically coloring pages. Yeah, for the, the kids. The, for the kids. The, yeah, the kids yeah. menu. I yeah, love it. that's great. That's great. And so you know what? I love chain restaurants. They are <laughs> there for the experience. I went to the Times Square Olive Garden in June. My birthday is in October, <laughs> and they know like they knew it wasn't my birthday, and they still brought me the free birthday cake, and they sang me happy birthday. <laughs> Like, listen. Hey, if there's something about it. expectations and going somewhere, no matter where you are, and being like, yep. "This is what I'm going to have," and it's exactly. and it's great. That is exactly. true. All right. When I was in Istanbul, I went to a Caribou Coffee, which is like <laughs> the most stupid thing you could do, but love it was it. great. Was it, was it just like it. ours? Exactly. It yeah. was identical. It had like the snowflakes and the wood and the fire. Meanwhile, you know, you're in the middle of Turkey. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, oh, um, Formula One, one of their races is in Jeddah. And what this one motorsport journalist who follows the follows the formula one circuit he's amazing i met him for the first time um in october at the u.s grand prix he sends me photos of the chilies near the jetta racetrack because there's a chilies near the f1 track and he's like look at the chilies and i'm like oh my goodness there's a chilies and it's so exciting for me you know it just brings the world together i go to the airport early because there's a chilies there Really, well, listen, I do. I love really. Chili's. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. We'll have to go to Chili's together someday. Someday <laughs> it will happen. There's a lot of years <laughs> left. We'll make it happen. Great idea. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us. I really appreciate it. It was it was an absolutely great time, and uh, hopefully we can have you back. Where can again. where can people find uh, more of your writing? Where can we find your book? That's a great question. I love that question. Okay, so <laughs> I am on social media. It is Alanis in. The middle initial in king because in like 2009 a guy named alan thought he was very important and made oh. his handle alan, alan is, is king. king have you talked to him so, 
I have not because he made those profiles and then left them. He never used them. Oh, <laughs> so man. That was great. So I'm Alanis in King online. And my book, if you want to order it, you can just go to richenergybook.com slash how dash to dash order. And we have all of the information, whether you're in the United States, you're in a different country, you want an ebook, you want an audio book. We have everything on there. And aside from that, I write for Road and Track all the time. You can find me there. And I also write for Business Insider. Awesome. And we'll link your book in the show notes. Everybody can just I'm click excited. right there and, and go it. buy it if they, if they would like. I highly encourage everybody. It's a super interesting story. She is a great writer that I looked up to very much. You, I always like reading what she put out. We'll see you next time.